Take your Bibles and go to 1 John, the second chapter. We'll be there in a little bit. And then also I want you to turn, once you find 1 John, put your bulletin there or something there to hold your place. And then I want you to go over to the clean part of your Bible. It's clean because nobody ever reads from that part very or preaches from over there. But in the book of Amos, all right, so go to Matthew, turn left about 100 pages or so, and Amos should be in there somewhere. And we'll be in Amos uh, by the time we get finished today. Uh, For years, uh, that's not the way to say that. It seems to me that throughout time, the living have had, that's us, the living, have had a fascination with the dead who then are living. Uh, Let me throw just a word association out there with you. Frankenstein... And unless you're a fan of the Edgar Winter group, musically, then Frankenstein is going to take you back to that figure from literature of the one who was dead and reanimated, right? Uh, right? Okay, just make it, because if, you lo- if I lose you on Frankenstein, we're gone, okay? I'll just pray and we'll go home. Uh, but I remember as a kid growing up and uh, those old movies, so if they were old then, they're super old now. Movies of like the mummy and, you know, those people or things or whatever. But, but we have a modern adaptation of that idea, uh, and that is the zombie. Now, many of us have been preparing for the zombie apocalypse, and, you know, we're pretty good at getting our ducks in a row for all of that. And um, there's a TV show that's out. Uh, the first service, those people didn't get this one too much, I don't think. Some of you I know will. Um, the TV show is called The Living, excuse me, The Walking Dead, right? I was thinking of those movies when I was a kid of Night of the Living Dead and, you know, all those things. Uh, I'm intrigued why we as people uh, are intrigued with dead being reanimated back to life uh, in the form of zombies and that kind of thing. Let Let me set the record straight for us theologically, Okay. If you're a fan of The Walking Dead, for instance, um, theologically, ain't going to happen, okay? If you like to watch these TV shows about ghost hunters and all that kind of stuff, theologically, ain't going to happen, all right? Scripture's clear on this, right? It is pointed unto man once to die. We get that. It's a closed system. None of us get out alive, okay? It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, zombieism. Is that what scripture says? After that, the judgment, right? There is life after death, to be sure. Maybe that's part of that innate part of us that looks to that. And if we deny Christ and we deny uh, the reality of the resurrection and all that, then we go back to zombies and Frankenstein and that kind of stuff. But theologically speaking, uh, ain't going to happen the way it comes across in TV. But I start with The Walking Dead uh, if you're not familiar with the TV show, let me give you the basic premise, okay? There's some kind of a virus or something that sweeps across the world, and it kills people. It doesn't kill everybody. There's some people uh, still alive, and the whole premise of the show is these who caught the virus and died are reanimated back to feed off of the living. It's gross for the most part. Um, But I use that to start today because it paints a vivid picture for us that I think we need to get. Churches are full of the walking dead. 
Okay? People who take on the name of Christ and say they have life and may in fact have life that only Jesus can give, but they slip into a mode where they just feed on other people. And many churches run into this, and uh, I, I think I want to be really careful here to clarify the whole series that we're working through here, all right? Because it could be uh, interpreted, and I, and I get that, that, that you know, maybe, maybe the preacher's just beating up on us every week. The, the reality is that this is not some new phenomenon. It's not that I'm frustrated with us as a church. The reality is that even in the first century church, John writes this letter called 1 John, even in the first century church, there was this feeding that was happening inside the church, and Christians were devouring one another. And claiming to be alive, they acted as if they were dead as far as the way they behaved themselves. And so one of the things that we want to be here as a church and as pastor, one of the things that I want to lead us toward is to be really good at handling people. And I'm not talking about shuffling people in and out and parking lots and all that stuff. That's all critical stuff. I'm talking about the way we view people and the way we handle each other. And it's not new to us, this problem. Some churches have it worse than us. We're probably better than what some churches do with that. But I, I don't care too much about what other churches are doing. We're us, right? And we're what we work on. One of the greatest compliments that a church could get is for people to come in and sense the presence of God there. And part of that comes down to how we deal with one another. So I want to talk about the walking dead this morning, but I want to do it from the context that John is speaking here, or writing, better said. And it's in 1 John chapter 2. Now, we're building off of this first statement of purpose that we've identified in John's letter. He says over in the first chapter... Uh, the third verse, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And so we're, we're building this whole series called Connected on the necessity that we have to be connected first with God in our relationship there and a vibrant, healthy relationship with God that plays out for us in vibrant, healthy relationships with each other and with the world beyond our doors. And so in this, we find in the first, excuse me, the second chapter, beginning in verse 7, John writes these words, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, here's where we get the walking dead part of it. He's writing into the church to church people, to people calling themselves Christians, and yet something is dead about them. Verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's begin today. And ultimately, what I want to do is get to a point 
that is very helpful for us. How do we get it right? But before we do that, let's make sure that we see just how pervasive, how widespread evil is in our time and how it creeps even into the church. You don't have to watch the news for very long. You don't have to be aware of what's going on around you very long before you realize just how effective darkness and evil is in our day and how it seems to be creeping into every corner of society. We watch the news or hear the news about a religious group of extremists in the Middle East calling themselves ISIS. How, how can somebody get to the point that they can unflinchingly take a knife and decapitate someone? How, how have we gotten to the point where in any context that seems like it's okay? But that's the world we live in. And if it's not ISIS beheading uh, its prisoners or setting them on fire, then we find domestic terrorists who plant bombs at race finish lines for the maximum amount of carnage and death that they can pull off. You don't have to be especially astute in our time to see the constant press of evil into the corners of our society. And it would be nice and it would be comfortable for us if we could sit inside our church buildings and look outward and say those things and wag our fingers and wag our heads and wag our tongues and say, you just shouldn't do that. The reality is that the constant press of darkness has found its way into the church. And so we find religious extremism on this side of the cross. One of the most notorious Baptist groups of our day. Let me say, say it this way. One of the Baptist groups in our time who has gotten more press than almost any other Baptist group in our time is a church called the Westboro Baptist Church. Spewing hatred in the name of the cross. Darkness presses. And it presses and finds its way even into the fabric of the church that Jesus Christ founded. With every passing year, it seems that darkness makes more ground and takes more ground. I would love it if I could tell you that those are the exceptions to the church rule. Unfortunately, it's not the case. Inside our churches are the walking dead. Let me give you a point of reference to that that stretches back to my childhood. Now, you know I was born in 1900 and none of your business. I've been around a while. In the early 60s, my family was a member of a church in Houston, the southwest part of town, just not too far from Madison High School, if you know where that is. And uh, I, I remember in those days in that church, a crisis that hit the church. 
affecting the pastor, affecting the key leaders in the church. And it all started innocently enough because, you know, Baptists, especially in those days, we had these things called revivals, uh, which is another way of saying our preacher's not getting the job done. Let's pay a good preacher to come in for a week and let's let him preach to us. And so uh, we pulled in, our church pulled in this evangelist who came in and part of the deal is I understand the story. I was very young and most of this I get back from my folks. And, uh, but as I understand the details, uh, this evangelist came in and preached a revival. And part of the revival there at that church, and it was a vibrant church, there was a lot going on there, but part of what happened is uh, he had the opportunity to go to Madison High School and speak to the student body there. And as a result of that, the star athlete at Houston Madison High School received Christ, made a public profession of faith, got gloriously saved. The problem was not so much that he got saved, because that's what everybody wanted anyway. The problem was he decided to go to church, and he happened to be black. And it happened to be an all-white church. Now, not by design, but by practice. And so, not only did he decide to go to church, he decided that he would do, he'd take the evangelist at his word that says, and all may come to life. And so, while he's there, he walks the aisle during the invitation time. He says, I've trusted Christ as my Savior, and I want to be baptized. And that was a crisis for that church. Because there was that set of key leaders in that church who said in one way or another, under no circumstances will a black person be welcome in this church. Now, I don't know where they found that in Scripture. I've been looking for it for decades now. And I struggle to find it. I remember this part of the story like it was yesterday in my head, at least, because uh, now I'm in the role that the pastor of that church found himself in. Here's what he said to that group of gathered leaders. Under God, I will baptize this boy. Even if it's the last thing I do in this church. And I don't remember, but I think it might have been the last thing that he did in that church. Evil and darkness presses its way in our society. That should not surprise us. Scripture points to that reality, but, but I want us to make sure before we go any further that we recognize that the church is not immune to the creep of darkness. As I said last week, most of us, maybe all of us in one way or another, as Christian people, as people who are the light or at least embody the light, we all like a little bit of darkness with our light. And we have those pieces of our lives that we give over to darkness and say, I don't care what God has to say. I'm going to do this with this part of my life. And darkness finds its way in. In 1 John 2, again, let me show you where John has this kind of thing in mind. Verse 9, whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. It's, it's, it doesn't fit, okay? You can say one thing, but if you're doing something else, it, it doesn't fit. Verse 11, he comes back and he says, but whoever hates his brother 
is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let me make sure that we get what John's saying here. Um, because I think that most of us, it was, it was my first impression, and I think maybe I'm enough like you. I hate to, hate to put that on you. I hope you're better than that. But um, that I think we all share this in common. It's easy to read over that and go, well, I, don't, I don't hate anybody. Okay, I'll give you that, maybe. But isn't it true that I can say, I don't hate anybody. Now, I don't like you, but I don't hate you, right? I mean, isn't that kind of the way we deal with it? And if anything, we put on our nice little church sayings and say, well, I, you know, I hate evil. Okay, that's different than what he's talking about here. If any man hates his brother, I think to get to what John means by that, we need to come back and make sure that we're really getting what love means. So I've said this to you many times. I'm going to say it again today. If, I, if you let me stay, then you're going to hear this lots of times, okay? 20 years from now, when I'm probably going to be dead and gone, I hope you'll remember this definition for love. Love is not an emotion. It's not that super sappy, oh, I just love her, she's so... Grow up, dude, get over it. It's not an emotion. Love is a choice. And love, as a choice, is that choice to invest in that other person. Even when it costs you something, maybe especially when it costs you something, you invest in that person And in the process of doing that, you elevate them to a point of living that they could never reach on their own. Now, that's my definition of love. Uh, Maybe somebody else had it first. I don't care who gets credit for it. Let's just get it. I invest in another person, even at the point where it costs me, so that that person moves to a level in living that they could never get to on their own. I don't get anything out of it, or at least I don't do anything trying to get something out of it, it's just an investment in them. The best picture of that is Jesus on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave, there's the cost, his only son, so that whoever, what, believes in him, stay with me, should not perish but have everlasting life. What God gives us through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross We could never achieve on our own. But he did that, even at great cost to himself, because he loves us. Now, if that's the definition for love, and until I hear a better one, that's one I'm going with. If that's the definition of love, what might be the definition of hate as John uses it here? You see, if we want to take love as just an emotion then it's easy for us to take hate as an emotion. Well, you know, I just hate her. She just always... No, that's anger. Okay, now you might in fact hate her, but let's don't confuse reality here, okay? Hate is no more an emotion than love is an emotion. Now they both lead us to some emotions probably, but if love is that investment of self, even at great cost to oneself, hate then becomes the refusal to love. Now, you see, this is different for us. And the reason I'm making such a big deal out of this is because John is writing into a church or a series of churches there. 
and they don't love one another the way they need to love one another, and he labels that as hate. Now, that seems awfully strong. But if we see that love is simply disinterest in the other person or a refusal to be involved with the other person, that's different than just not liking them. This is the one now, what John would say, and he's talking to a group of people, especially there, who are giving some false teaching. And in the process of giving that false teaching, instead of investing and pulling those other people up, they are separating them from the fellowship and they are causing them pain and it's going to lead them to a bad place. And John says, that's hate. It would be the equivalent of us seeing somebody in great need and turning our back on them and walking away. And as we walk away, we say, well, I love you. I'll pray for you. John says it just doesn't fit. It's the equivalent of saying that we're in the light, but yet living in the darkness. So what we find with this is very easily... A church can be guilty of and full of the walking dead who claim to be alive and yet feed off of other people. But I'm not so interested. I know that that's not the most encouraging way to begin a message. And we're halfway through or more on this message and it's all been the the down focus. And I don't really want that, okay? Because my deal is not to beat us up. My deal is to say, okay, so how do we avoid being that? How do we get out of that if we as an individual happen to be that person? And fortunately, I think John gives us great input here, okay? So as true as it is that darkness seems to be just creeping across and marching across the landscape of our society, here is a corresponding truth that has to trump the darkness. And that is, light always overcomes the darkness. Did you get that? Okay, I don't want to be lost in the middle of this, or you to be lost in the middle of this, to miss that statement. As bad as this world is, and as dark as some churches can be, light always overcomes the darkness. First John, uh, John chapter 2, verse 7 says this, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Let, let me make sure that we get uh, what this is talking about. And remember, he's talking about fellowship and building it between themselves and this duality between light and darkness. How, how does that all fit? Here's here's the first point of reference I want to give you if we want to make sure that we always hold to and be people of the light, not the walking dead. Go with what works. Well, actually, that's not the best way to say it because that's not really the way that John says it here. I think what I want to say here is we want to go with the old that works. Notice here that John in in verse 7 says, I'm writing to you no new commandment. But in verse 8, he's going to come right back and say, but it is a new commandment. So let's wrap our heads around that. I'll take just a couple of minutes to explain that as best I can, as quickly as I can. I think it's James that refers to this as the royal law. 
Remember that passage over in Mark where Jesus is uh, in that latter part of his ministry and these uh, religious leaders are pressing in on him and, and they recognize that by this time that Jesus is a threat to them and to their whole system. And so they begin to try to do a number of things to get Jesus onto the cross. And ultimately, they're going to be successful in doing that, but that's only because Jesus allows that to happen, uh, according to Scripture. But even still, in the middle of that, they began to do their best to get him marginalized with the people because they recognized that the people followed him much more than they're willing to follow these religious leaders. And so they come at him with this debate and it's, it's a debate for them as religious leaders, uh, leaders of the Jews, uh, but it's also one of those that has a hook in it. And so they try to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma, and they say, okay, so, so which is the greatest commandment of all? And, and their discussions and their debates, you know, they're looking at this whole body. We call most of the Pentateuch or a lot of the Pentateuch, and they would have said, that, well, there's 613 laws there, and uh, we make it simple because 613 is too big a number, so we just boil it down to 10, 10 commandments. Which is the greatest of all of them? And they're having this debate, and they come to Jesus, and, and they put the question to him, but they know that when he answers, or at least they feel like when he answers, he's going to alienate part of the crowd who don't agree with his position. Mission accomplished for them. Jesus, here's a good thing to know about Jesus. He always gives you more than you think. And so in that dilemma, he says, well, I'll tell you, uh, actually, I'm going to give you the top two. Remember what he says? The first one is this, and he quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall worship the Lord with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Um, And he holds to that, but then he turns immediately and he gives them part of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13, uh, that we say this way, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way he said it. Uh, Leviticus 19.13 reads a little bit differently than that. But here's what Jesus does with that. He gives them the two great commandments. By the way, it's also the two commandments that form the basis of the book of First John. You want to be connected with people? You want to do well? You want to handle people well? You cannot unless you are in proper relationship with God. So that's the first great commandment, love the Lord your God. Put God first. That's a legal term. We, we try to make love in that Old Testament context. We try to make it out like it's this emotional. Okay, God, I just love you so much, and, and I'm gonna, I just want you to be Lord of my life and all that kind of way. You know, Lord of my life is the right part of that because love in Deuteronomy 6 is a legal term. It's a technical term. It's part of covenant language between one who is like a landowner or superior in his life and his life station and one who has nothing on a different level. It's two different society levels totally. And the covenant is the one on the bottom says, I love you, and our covenant says that I will treat you as being submissive to you. That's Deuteronomy 6, what love means. And so when Jesus says, love the Lord your God, he pulls that Old Testament concept and he says, if you want to be in right relationship, you want to get the commandment, the greatest one right, then you submit to the authority of God in your life. And we like to make that like it's all about, you know, the house part of it. And this is how we do it. We train our kids. And there's truth in that. But we don't take that concept 
We just say, well, we just got to love God. That's not what that says. You have to let God be God. That's what that says. And teach your children the same thing. Jesus doesn't leave it there. Takes it to the other one, which is, so you love God, and now you love people. You treat them right. Not so much the way you want to be treated, but the way God treats you. That's how that all fits together. And so John writes into this broken church fellowship, and he says, stop eating on each other. Recognize that there are those who say they're in their light, but, but the way they're, right, they're living their lives, they're not doing that. The walking dead they are, feeding on other people. How do we get it right? John says, go with the old that works. And that's the love commandment. Friday, I found myself sitting at a business in Beaumont while they were replacing the windshield on my wife's vehicle. Uh, You know, she's always driving places, they're breaking windshields. So um, I've never seen that happen. Okay. You know, I know some of you guys, y'all do anything, you know, with MacGyver knives and that kind of stuff, but uh, I've never changed the windshield on a car, never intend to try. Uh, so I took it to the professionals and let them do that. I've never even seen that happen. So I'm sitting there watching them uh, through this window uh, because it's always better for the lawsuit later if you can see what happened, right? And so, so I'm watching them do this, and they pull the old windshield off, and they go to put the new one in. And uh, here's this guy up there, and he's got this, it's like a caulking gun uh, that's on steroids. I mean, it's, I was thinking this looks like a, you know, well, anyway, so he's up there, and, and he takes both hands, and he's doing this, and he runs a bead of this, I guess it's a liquid rubber, I don't know exactly, but he runs this bead all the way around the outside before they ever put their hands on the new windshield. They take the time to clean off the surface, to come in with this super caulking gun with liquid rubber or whatever it is, and he goes all the way around. Uh, It's so big and heavy that he can only do 18 inches or two feet at a time, and he's got to shift positions and get up there, and he's almost, you know, all kinds of contortions trying to get it on there. And so while he's doing that, I'm thinking, okay, now, see, I don't want wind noise, and I don't want water leakage and all that kind of stuff in this new windshield. And I'm thinking, every time he stops that and puts it down again, the chances of there being a leak right there are higher than other places. And so I'm thinking, okay, what's he going to And sure enough, when he gets there, he gets his tool, and he goes to those places where the joints were, and he pushes it in, and he works that rubber so that it's just one solid piece through there. And then once that's all in place, and they've taken the time to do that right, they set the windshield on top of that, and then just with force, they push it onto that rubber. And it bubbles up on the sides. I suppose it did. At least that's the picture I have in my mind as the best I could see it. What they've done with that is they've created a bond between the metal and the glass so that air or water, neither one, can escape around the edges. You with me? So love is that bonding agent for us in our relationships. And without that being there, we're going to find these gaps in our relationships. Because after all, there are those people in the world who get on your last nerve, don't they? And if it's just up to you 
to treat them right, you're not going to make it. Now, you may make it nine out of ten times, but that tenth time, you're going to come uncorked on them, and they're going to deserve it. And the damage will be done in your relationship. That makes sense? So John writes into this, and he says, here's the picture for us. Love each other. And if you say that you love each other, but you act without that love bond between you, it might just be that you're fooling yourself. So he doesn't leave it there. He goes to the next step, and I'm out of time, so I'm going to finish it right here. He doesn't leave it there. He goes to verse 8, and he talks about, but it is a new commandment. And I do want to give you this part because this is the main thing, I think, as, as far as what we can do. It's not just that we hold on to the old that works. We also need to make way for the new. And the new here, let me read this verse. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I close with this. Back in October, Teresa and I uh, took a vacation. We went up to... Uh, Eureka Springs area. And we found this place out on, I think it's called Beaver Lake. Is that right? I think that's right. And uh, we, had, we had this cabin that was looking out over the top of the lake and it had a little porch on there. And so I went out one morning long before daylight and I just sat out there in the dark um, just kind of watching the world wake up. I like to do that. Because we were up on a bluff and we were looking out there, um, I watched with these dots of security lights at various places all over the place. And of course, it's all dark right in the middle where the lake was. And uh, I watched as the sun began to come up. Um, and, you know, many of you don't know the sun actually looks like it rises every day. By the time you get up, it's already well into the day. But early in the morning, it's dark. And then, then these faint light rays begin to pierce one side of the world. And those light rays become very obvious in the dark. And before you know it, those light rays become a glow. And so I watched from that vantage point as the glow of the morning sunrise progressed. And then I started watching those security lights that were on photo-sensitive um, uh, switches, I suppose, because as it would reach a certain level of light, they would begin to snap off. And it started on one side of the lake and went across. And so I began to watch that. And as I was watching those things, I, I could see now instead of just darkness and nothing, a void out there, I began to see the outline of the lake. And then I began to see that there were some clouds that were rolling in and fog began to envelop different pieces of that. And I sat out there probably for two hours from full dark to full light as I watched the gradual increase of the sunrise. That's the picture that John gives us in verse 8. Jesus has identified himself as the light of the world and he has come. By the time John writes this, we're a ways into that first, as a matter of fact, beginning to get towards the end of that first generation of Christian people. And John highlights the fact that Jesus and the influence that he has, especially on our relationship with God and our relationship with other people, is gaining ground. And the light is advancing. And the darkness that we see in our society that creeps everywhere, when Jesus hits the scene, Darkness runs for cover.
How is it with you today? If you happen to be one of those people who have been beat up by church and you feel like Christian people are feeding on you, what do you do with that? If you're one of those who's feeding on others, the walking dead yourself, what do you do with that? I say let's all commit ourselves to be those who would advance the light. And that we would get love right and watch as our own lives are enhanced because of God's love for us and we spread that around us. What might God do with a church that was fully committed to loving people? Let's pray.